0: Hello everyone and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host today, Tyson Davis, and I'm joined by...
1: Gina Coombe.
2: And we're here today with... Introduce yourself for me. Hi there, my name is James Roos. And what do you do, James? Uh, I'm a master's student here at the University of Western Ontario and I work in the field of forensic pathology studying motor motor vehicle collisions.
0: Wow, very interesting. So, Gina here is also in pathology, so I'm going to throw it to her because she'll know more about it than me.
2: So,
1: can you give us, like, a brief background of, I guess, your um, project?
2: Right. Uh, So, I'm actually working on my second project right now. The first project that I commenced was last year, and what we looked at was factors that influence uh, pedestrian deaths, that is, uh, deaths of people that are walking on the road and are hit by motor vehicles, And uh, the interesting results we found from there uh, basically went from the autopsy. We looked at some of the results from there. We were able to identify several injuries that are observed in the post-mortem specimens, that is the dead pedestrian, that are indicative of the actual orientation of the pedestrian at the time of impact. So this would be very useful in cases where there are no eyewitnesses and the police and or other medical legal professionals are trying to put together uh, what exactly happened in the collision.
0: So by orientation you mean did they see the car coming, were they back on and didn't see anything,
2: is that what you mean? Correct, orientation refers to uh, the actual 3D physical orientation of the person when they were hit by the vehicle, which is very important in uh, the medical legal investigations because you want to try to put together a reconstruction of the collision to get exactly uh, a clear picture of what happened when the person was hit.
1: So is there a um, common place or common area where pedestrians are hit?
2: Uh, Well, in the actual um, results we looked at, we divided the actual spatial locations into uh, both rural and urban, and then within that, between different sizes of roads, so let's say two-lane versus four-lane. In terms of uh, pedestrians, obviously, you're going to have a lot more pedestrian um, usage of the roads in urban settings, so there was a lot more pedestrian-related deaths in cities, so overall, urban areas are most affected by this particular uh, death cause.
0: Okay, and do you, just out of curiosity, are there, like, uh Commonalities between um, victims? Like, do you see the same injuries all the time uh, in in your research?
2: Uh, yes, actually, uh, one of the data points that we found most interesting from this pedestrian study that I did was what is called a bumper fracture. Now, this is when a pedestrian is hit upright, so they'll be somewhere on the road or the sidewalk, and they're contacted by the motor vehicle. And uh, based on the point of impact of the vehicle on the person, uh, usually when an adult is hit, this will be the bumper, and it'll usually hit somewhere around the femur or the tibia and fibula, which is... on. Um just uh, about above and below the knee, depending on the person's height. So the most common injury, actually, when a pedestrian is hit upright, um, has been detailed by my supervisor, Dr. Michael Scrum, and it's called the bumper fracture. And this is usually a fracture of either the tibia or the tibia and the fibula, which are the two bones that comprise the bottom half of the lower extremity, the leg. And so when a pedestrian is hit upright, usually um, a lot of the time we're going to see these fractures of the tibia and fibula.
3: All right, so um, you did the study. What... um what is the best thing that a pedestrian could do to avoid dying in a car crash? If you see a car coming towards you, what do you do?
2: Well, it's kind of a two-way street. The, the, the pedestrian certainly has a uh, role to play in this, but what we found a lot of the time was also that uh, the driver has a very important role to play in this, too. So we found a lot of the time that... Um, There's always uh, toxicology done on the part of the pedestrian when when they are hit and they die, because they're the ones dead, so that'll be performed at the autopsy. But it's not always uh, done when the actual pedestrian is hit by the driver. So if we're looking at actual faults that cause these collisions, uh, we want to really look at um, both the pedestrian and the driver, and it's really this relationship that I think is the basis of the research, and uh, what can we both do to work together. So pedestrians, you know... We record all data elements from the kind of clothing they're wearing. So let's say they're wearing dark clothing um, and they're walking at night. That's an obvious one. Uh, You definitely have a higher probability of being hit as a pedestrian then. Uh, But also drivers. There's a lot more uh, interactive features in vehicles these days. Uh, GPS, radios, even Bluetooth uh, and cell phones can get very distracting. So definitely there's a a lot of factors from both sides. Hmm.
3: So... So kind
1: of moving on, so that was your first project, right. I right? Okay, so then is that part of your master's project that you're working on right now?
2: That's not part of my master's project, no. The master's project I'm working at now, we're uh, not dealing with uh, strictly pedestrians. What we're doing is all motor vehicle collisions that have involved a fatality in southern Ontario. And where we're getting these cases from is from a database that's been compiled by my supervisor in previous years, and it's an ongoing database, and... My supervisor works for the team called the Motor Vehicle and Safety Research Team, uh, abbreviated as MOVES. So this database contains um, data both from fatalities, so people that have died in car crashes, and as well as people that have just uh, been injured. So these would this would be data from hospital records that we have as well. So right now, what we're doing, we're looking at all data here, and we're trying to identify factors that um, factors that would say where if a person was hit and involved in a motor vehicle collision and they're an occupant of the vehicle, what would predispose someone to be involved in more fatal collision? And not only what are the factors that lead to that, such as alcohol, speed, those are the very common ones that I think a lot of people can come to on a common sense kind of um, mind, train of thought, but we also want to see if these factors are in place, what actual physical mechanism that the car takes when it is hit. There's different trajectories when a pedestrian is hit. There's also different kind of physical mechanisms so uh, how the car orientates itself and how the car orients itself in 3D space. Uh, and we want to try to connect. So we want to connect the initial factors, let's say alcohol, speed, distractions. And we want to see how that influences the actual, what happens in the crash. So how does the car respond in physical space? And then how does that produce certain injuries and fatalities? So it's kind of a comprehensive thing. We start at the beginning. We go to what caused the crash. And then we go to the end and we see the results from the crash and how that kind of connects to what happened originally, to try to tell a whole narrative.
3: Have you found anything?
2: Uh, Not so far. uh, Actually, my master's project I just started this year. So there's a lot of actually red tape involved because the cases in our database both come from people that have died, so fatality cases, um, and also people that have survived and just uh, maybe got some injuries from the car crash but did not actually succumb to their injuries. So we actually get data from both hospitals as well as post-mortem reports. So we need to actually submit two different research ethics proposals to get going. So there's a lot of red tape, and we're just getting through that now. So getting a lot of good cases going uh, in um, upcoming February month.
0: Interesting. So I guess you're very uh, for the no cell phone law while driving, no use of your cell phone. I would imagine, anyway. I would imagine that's a pretty big factor in motor vehicle collisions, um, as far as I know, in Alberta, the, the law goes even further, and it's like an anti-distraction law. Like, you can even be pulled over for being seen drinking a coffee while driving. Do you think it should go that far? Like, I kind of, I don't know, I feel like I can drink a coffee while I drive without being distracted. I, how, how how do you feel about that?
2: That's right. Um, well, this is uh, certainly a larger debate than my project would encompass, but in terms of distracted driving, I feel this... Uh, in this particular case here, I feel a cell phone would would distract me a lot more than uh, perhaps drinking a coffee. So I think um, although the idea and the thought behind these uh, new laws and regulations is good, um, until we really see their effect and see how many people are getting tickets and see if that actually has caused a reduction in car crashes and in motor vehicle collisions, fatalities overall, I think that would be a better time to comment on it. But As for me, I think I can drink a coffee while driving. Uh, I don't know if I can necessarily text while driving. So I think texting while driving, that's definitely a big issue right now. Uh, In terms of uh, really taking it to the next level and banning anything except uh, gluing your eyes to the mirror and uh, out the window the whole time, that's where it can get a bit extreme.
3: Uh, What do you think of some of the stuff we've done in Ontario that seem like laws drawn by actuaries rather than politicians? Like um, recently a law passed where despite you having a full license, Your alcohol tolerance doesn't show up until doesn't um, come into effect until you're 21 years old. Uh, Do you see that? um, I don't know. Do you see like a thing about that area of being under 21 but being full G licensed, but also being within your alcohol tolerance but not at zero? Like, is that really?
2: Well, that's uh, that's that's actually an interesting question. And you you think that um, both age and kind of uh, the status of your license uh, would be connected, as in if you're uh, you know younger people, let's say, even though they have the graduate license, what we found in uh, statistics is um, when they... young people do have graduated licenses, so if they do have a full G license, this doesn't necessarily uh, bear as much of an impact on their incidents and their probability of being involved in motor vehicle collision than, let's say, if they were just young on their own. So what I'm trying to say by that is that it, um, age has been found to be a, a much larger factor than the actual status of your license. Uh, and this, is, this isn't just a Canadian thing either. Um, most countries have a certain field of research at least devoted to motor vehicle safety. And uh, so there are a lot of different licensing systems worldwide, too. So in terms of looking at all the data together, we found that uh, it's really the younger ages that are um, involved in more motor vehicle collisions. And then, obviously, at the other end of the spectrum, you have a lot more older people, too, above the ages of 60 and 70 that we see on the other end of the spectrum. And they're they're involved in a lot more than the middle-aged people as well. In terms of alcohol for younger drivers, I see why the rule did come into effect it's not it's it has nothing to do with the actual status of the license so a g one g two or a full g license it's It's more the age in general and in in general, we have found that uh people who are of younger age are just more likely to be involved in motor vehicle collisions
1: so apart from age, how about the gender of the of the drivers
2: um I, I can't comment on that um, because uh, the, the way we record our data, it, it does have some confidentiality, confidentiality um, measures in place. So we don't record anything like uh, names or individual characteristics. We do actually record gender and um, height and weight, though. So I, so I can comment on that. In terms of my pedestrian study, uh, There I, even after analyzing both male and female, we didn't find that uh, in terms of both, pedestrians hit and in terms of drivers there was any real significant difference in terms of uh, a numerical statistical difference oh that's interesting
0: yeah i would have i would have figured the other way around as well like i did lifeguard training uh when i was in my undergrad and and i was warned watch the 18 to 25 year old males those are the guys that you're going to be most likely to have to save. Those are the guys that are most likely to do something foolish and hurt themselves. So I would have assumed, like, I got insurance for the first time at 17, I paid an arm and a leg for it, and it's been going down gradually ever Mm -hmm. since, but I know females in my same position didn't have to pay nearly as much. So I would have have assumed, at least the insurance companies think, Mm. that men are more dangerous drivers. It's curious. I would have expected to see some of that uh, show up in the statistics as well.
2: That's very correct, and that is actually one of the variables we are going to be looking at as I do my new study starting this year. So now that we're actually looking at not just pedestrians that are hit, but actual all-motor vehicle collisions and actual occupant injuries and occupant fatalities, uh, we are we are recording whether or not it was a male or female occupant. We're just not recording anything uh, past that level of confidentiality, such as names and stuff. So if there is something involved in male and female, and one is more likely to either be involved in a collision as the initiator or as the victim, uh, we are we, we will be able to pick that out.
3: Do you guys work with insurance companies?
2: Uh, personally, no, not for my research project, but the database I'm using that was constructed by the MOVES team, the Motor Vehicle Research Safety Team, um, the way they get all their data, it's, it's a very eclectic nature. It's a very eclectic uh, gathering process. So they'll actually work with uh, police departments. They'll work with the coroner's office. They'll work with uh, people in the manufacturing and mechanic industry. And, yes, uh, they do work with people in insurance uh, if on individual cases, on a case-by-case basis. So if a certain amount of information related to a case, let's say the insurance aspect of a motor vehicle collision, if that is relevant to the case, it will be documented. And so that kind of information will be in the database, correct?
3: Yeah. I just imagine your results will be very interesting to them.
2: Yes, yes.
0: Uh, just to go back a minute to um, the involvement of alcohol in motor vehicle collisions. Here in Ontario, it's, what is it, 0.05, or le- or sorry, less than 0.05, and you're fine. Between 5 and 8, you blow a warn, and above 8, impaired. Right. In Newfoundland, it's zero. If you blow 0.0, if you swallow your mouthwash and you blow into... You have to
2: be stone-cold sober to stone be driving. Stone-cold yes. sober,
0: which do you think is a more reasonable uh, way of going about it? Because I, I personally, in Newfoundland, it kind of kills me. If I go out for dinner with somebody, I can't have a glass of wine. I can't have a pint with my dinner. Uh, whereas here, everybody has a pint with dinner. Everybody has a glass of wine. Uh, do you think that at that level it makes that much of a difference?
2: Personally, um, I think it all, once again, comes down to the individual. Um, if you do blow below .05 and... You, you have had a drink and you don't feel like you should be operating a motor, motor vehicle. I think even though the law says you can be operating a motor vehicle, I think if you know in your head that you should really shouldn't be doing this, say you feel dizzy, say you're just, you know, something's not right, you shouldn't do it. Um, on the other side, though, there might be some people that have uh, four or five drinks in a very short period and blow much above, uh, much above a 008 and they still feel they have the confidence that, uh, that, that they can drive. Uh, so the big issue here is really uh, what it comes down to, is people think the government is trying to regulate their personal activity, and that's a um, certain issue there. there. That is something to be discussed further, certainly not, not in my field of research. But I, I would think that uh, a strict yet not completely um, eliminatory approach to drinking alcohol well driving a motor vehicle, is uh, what we have here in Ontario, and I think that's probably the best system. So I'd advocate that over a complete... Zero tolerance. Zero tolerance, yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah. I I think originally it was set up in Newfoundland because we had so many, um, you know, impaired driving collisions and impaired uh, driving-related tickets and cases that would come up in the courts that they just said, screw it, nobody's allowed to drink anymore. Correct. And whether or not it was a good decision, it has been effective at least.
1: Just um, based on what you've said, after they said zero tolerance, did the numbers go down at all? Do you know?
0: (laughs) I think, but I mean, that's not something I really know much about. But I think, as far as I know.
3: Uh, So um, getting away from intoxicated or possibly too young to drive or too something to drive, given the studies you've been doing and studying the research you've been doing, what would you say are dangerous habits that someone might not expect are dangerous habits? when driving a car or when being a pedestrian?
2: Uh, So when we look at our data, we look at uh, factors that cause collisions in terms of whether they're a vehicular factor or whether they're a human factor or whether they're an environmental factor. So something like a human factor would be what we just talked about, either intoxicated driving or something like a younger age or their licensing status. Uh, An environmental factor might be something like the type of road, the weather you're driving in. Um, A lot of people will go out and they'll drive when it's... uh, in adverse weather conditions, we always see this car slipping around, sliding on the road, especially the past couple weeks. Uh, so certain there is a correlation between negative weather and an increased amount of at least motor vehicle collisions, not, necessary, not necessarily fatalities. I haven't found that yet. Uh, and in terms of uh, actual vehicular factors, in uh, my past pedestrian death study... Um, we classified these vehicles into three different types. So we had HCV, which was heavy commercial vehicles, so that's something like a transport truck or recycling truck. We had LTVs, which were light truck vehicles, so that's something like a Ford F-150 or um, an SUV, a pickup truck. And we had passenger cars, so that's something like your sedan or coupe. Um, in terms of pedestrians being hit, we didn't see a, we didn't see a large correlation between any one type or the other, but it is definitely something I am excited to look into going into this study that I'm doing where we encompass all of motor vehicle collisions in southern Ontario involving fatalities or um, occupant injuries. I'd like to look at the actual car type, so both the make, model of the car, weight of the car, and see if uh, one, one particular uh, physical feature of the actual vehicle predisposes someone to a particular type of injury. I think that's a very interesting uh, point of my research.
0: That is very interesting, because as far as I know, insurance companies, I don't know if this is fact, so forgive me if I'm wrong, but as far as I know, insurance companies um, base their rates, one of the factors is color. Um, As as far as I know, if you have a red car, you're you're more likely to think it's sportier, and so you'll drive it faster. I do know they do base it on number of doors, so if you have a two-door car versus a four-door car, you get charged more for the two-door because it's a sportier car. I mean, that didn't really make sense to me when I had a two-door 95 Hyundai Accent. It didn't really make sense because it was a Hyundai Accent. It's not a sports car. But I can see, like, very interesting results coming out of that kind of research.
2: Right. And I think the actual correlation there between uh, insurance rates and the actual type of car you have, color is uh, certainly interesting. Um, Whether I agree with that or myself, uh, as as a young person, maybe if I got a red Beamer with a Two doors, uh, I, w- I would get charged a lot more than uh, my mom's Jeep Liberty driving that around, right? Uh, so it does affect me personally. Uh, in terms of where those numbers actually come from, from the literature, from past research, uh, what their rationale for that, um, you'd have to ask the, incur- the insurance companies, I think. But it, it does make sense just from a psychological psychological perspective that a young person driving a red Beamer is is more likely to be in an accident than uh, someone driving a larger minivan or something like that, maybe just looking at it, that, that, their rationale.
0: Did you see any correlation between this? Because this is something that especially drives me crazy when I'm walking around is people with their head down, just texting or whatever, <laughs> doing whatever they are yes, doing yes. on their phone, not paying attention to the traffic around them, not paying attention to other pedestrians. Did you see that show up in your research? Like people that were pedestrians that were on their phones were more likely or less likely or, you know, did you see any of that in your research?
2: Absolutely, actually, and uh, that. Uh, thank you for mentioning that. That is the other side of the coin to distracted driving. Uh, as I said before, the pedestrian has a role to play as well. Uh, we did see people that, uh, not necessarily uh, using their cell phones, but whether they were en- engaged in a conversation with someone else, whether they were under the influence of alcohol or drugs, that's also considered a distraction, I'd say. Uh, so the, the pedestrian, yes, definitely has a role to play in uh, alleviating or, reducing the potential for harm when they're walking on the roadways it's not you you can't just do whatever you do you...
3: all righty um so let's move into another topic that's been rather um close to our hearts because uh recently a young uh student a 23 year old student on, not what, a student game? no not a no, student they were uh, they
0: weren't a uni- they weren't a western student
3: but um 23 year old man was uh killed on campus yes this week. Yes. I believe, actually, last, last week. It was Sunday. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. On Sunday.
2: Yeah, so it was a Mr. Braz.
3: And, um, I mean, I could imagine that that made it a lot of uh, headlines in the office in the vehicular uh, area. Did you, um, I don't know, did anything happen at the office? Did this come up? Um,
2: uh, right, well, the the case is, in, is ongoing, so uh, so anything uh, related to the case will be confidential. Mm. Uh, but yes, it is definitely interesting to see a case hit so close to home and definitely involving my field of research. Uh, and, it, and it kind of, uh, reading it in the media exemplifies the importance of the tools that are coming from the research I'm doing. Uh, from the medical-legal uh, aspect, I believe reading uh, in the London Free Press, um, there are uh, now criminal charges resulting from this case from the driver of the vehicle, uh, I think... Uh, Two of the select charges, I believe one's an impaired driving charge, and I believe one is also a dangerous driving charge. Uh, so in terms of where those charges uh, w- would have actually come from, say I say I was analyzing this case, uh, once again, my research doesn't involve uh, laying blame on anyone, uh, doesn't involve the actual uh, persecution or legal aspect of it. That's not what my research is about. It's more to give uh, forensic pathologists a tool to work with. Uh, but, but if I was looking at it, the way uh, my research would have uh, deduced that, obviously, in paired driving, you would have done the toxicology on the suspect. Uh, but it, in terms of the actual dangerous driving, that's very interesting. Uh, there's a couple different ways they could have come to this conclusion. Now, after there is a motor vehicle collision, it's very common to have a collision reconstruction expert. Now, this is either someone that works with the police department that they have uh, on permanent hire, or this will be someone from an outside uh, collision analysis firm. Uh, so they'll come in and they'll um, look at a certain amount of physical parameters related to the collision. Uh, one of the very useful ones that a lot of cars have in them now is actually what is called an event data recorder. And this will re- a, be constantly recording in your car as you're driving. Um, a lot of GPSs actually have it bundled with it. Uh, and what it does, it'll record changes in velocity. It'll record every time you hit the gas, every time you hit the brake. So using these kind of uh, quantitative variables that we get from these event data recorders in these cars, you can kind of put together the narrative of what happened right before the crash. Uh, So it's very useful in uh, actually finding out what happened if you don't have any eyewitnesses' accounts, and even if you do have eyewitnesses' accounts, to confirm what happened.
0: Yeah, because as far as I know, somebody told me that uh, they were coming through campus around that same time, uh, and they had, or not, not the exact same time as the collision, but while the investigation was ongoing, and they saw police measuring skid marks. I would imagine that would be a huge... Uh, helpful factor in your field as well.
2: Correct, correct. Um, skid marks, uh, if you measure those, not only do you get a quantitative um, estimate of, uh, of speed, but you, you also get to see the direction where the car was headed um, as it was coming to its final resting place. And uh, the, the appearance of skid marks, uh, someone investing in that scene may, uh, on a very rudimentary level, just use that as a sign that there was there was some attempt to swerve or stop. And that, that, that might be the first... Uh, piece of information you would gather from that, and you would continue the investigation onwards from there.
0: Yeah, because it seems to me, I don't know, I did a physics monitor in my undergrad, cool. um, couldn't you deduce kind of uh, initial velocity as well from skid marks? Could, or at least get a, a decent estimate on, he, you know, he was doing 70 kilometers an hour when he applied the brakes, just based on skid marks and damage done to whatever uh, the vehicle strikes.
2: Correct. Correct. Uh, we look at both damage to what the vehicle strikes, so damage to the vehicle exterior, and we also look at uh, if the vehicle made any contact points when it was in its collision uh, with either in the environment or another vehicle. So we'll look at stuff like um, the actual angle of indent of, uh, let's say, a road post or another car that uh, the colliding vehicle hit. And yeah, so there is uh, a lot of velocity measurements uh, in terms of actually analyzing the the skid marks. Um, in cars that have this event data recorder, we'd, we'd obviously use that information over uh, these physical measurements, but that doesn't mean they wouldn't be done alongside. Uh, but in terms of getting an actual velocity, um, computerized measurements with these event data recorders are favored over actual physical scene measurements, if they are available. Uh, of course. Just because course. They, are, they are more precise. Yeah, but
0: if you got like a 1984 Dodge Caravan driving down the road... I'm guessing it probably doesn't have one of these recorders.
2: Not not bundled in the vehicle myself, but like I said, a lot of uh portable GPSs will actually have one bundled as well. So if someone's using that it could be used as well. Interesting. Yeah.
3: So what's something that you found in your research that somebody out there listening on the radio right now might actually find surprising? So it's something maybe that you found that would be unexpected? <laughs> something
2: unexpected in my research. Okay, so we'll we'll go back to the pedestrian death study that I did in my undergraduate. And uh well well, what I found very interesting is just the amount of detail that the professionals working in this forensic pathology field—the uh, the narrative they can actually put together when there were no eyewitnesses, when there was no one at the scene—the uh, technology and the pure brain power of these people doing the autopsies and doing these investigations—they're able to create a whole entire narrative of an event, um, whereas there was no human witnesses, uh, and a lot of times these are not video recorded. So I just think the actual um, approach that the professionals take to constructing narratives based on no no having no evidence or no eyewitnesses at all is a very extraordinary they come a long ways in these kind of investigations
1: so just out of curiosity moving away from all this stuff um, if you do um, get into a car crash do you just kind of leave your vehicle and just hoping that like the police the investigation the people that would investigate would come and then do the whole um uh, scene process like scene investigation or should you actually move your vehicle um to like a safer area for say
2: if a safer if a safer area exists if this is a, if this is a busy road obviously you're going to want to move your vehicle off the road if possible um a lot of the time where there is this kind of intervention where police and uh, investigators will come later is where when there is an injury or a fatality involved so a lot of the time that 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 won't be an option And so uh, in in those kind of cases where there are uh, severe injuries or fatalities, uh, most of the time uh, the scene would remain as it is until uh, the investigators and medical personnel get there. Because a lot of the times the vehicles wouldn't even be able to be moved if it's a severe enough collision. Yeah.
0: Well, I want to thank you very much for coming on our show, James. It was very interesting to have you talk about this kind of stuff uh be sure to tune in uh not next week but the week after for our uh bi-weekly radio show uh keep in mind that we are putting up on the off weeks we are putting up podcasts uh
3: every week so every week there's a podcast these shows get put up about a week after they air so your interview will be up next week but every week we have a show we do our own separate podcast that we do when we don't have radio time And it's over at gradcastradio.podbean.com. We'll get a domain name soon, I believe. Until then, uh, definitely hook us up on Twitter, where we're at gradcastradio. And if you want to come on and talk about your research, gradcastradio at gmail.com. And drive safe.